You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to episode 107 of Belaboured. Today, we are going to learn all about the crisis in Puerto Rico and why some workers there are facing a new minimum wage down to $4.25 an hour. But first, the news. So home care workers scored a long-awaited victory at the Supreme Court, finally, uh, when it recently let a lower court decision stand affirming their labor rights for the first time under federal labor law. The court's decision to deny certiorari in the case Home Care Association of America versus Weil, uh, which you've covered before and belabored, will essentially allow um, the implementation of a new regulation done by the White House that would extend protections of the Fair Labor Standards Act, namely minimum wage and overtime, to this group of workers who have long been denied it, even after other domestic workers um, won them with reforms in the 1970s. So this is a much-needed upgrade to this fast-growing healthcare profession, especially as it prepares to absorb a huge number of baby boomers and also as the needs and the skills needed for the workforce um, are growing ever more complex. The biggest challenge up ahead will be implementation because, as with many other low-wage industries, um, this is one where wage theft is rife. A lot of the contractors and the third-party employers that would be targeted by this regulation are known for finding all sorts of ways to short workers on overtime, and that leaves open the question of bargaining. And as we saw with uh, last year's uh, Supreme Court decision based on home care workers who are paid through Medicaid, their uh, labor organizing rights are basically being undercut by an arcane provision of the law that, or a decision on an arcane provision of the law that would forbid the collection of agency fees as part of the fair share in collective bargaining. So that will be the next step, but home care workers who are unionized all across the country are thrilled that they're finally getting a legislative parity for things that they've been fighting for on the front lines for years and years. In the wake of the uh, Brexit vote, the UK has been roiling with protests in action. And in the midst of all that, this week saw a one-day strike by the National Union of Teachers challenging austerity budget cuts and significantly, in the wake of Brexit, of course, uh, declaring support and welcome to migrants. An estimated 7,000 schools were shuttered by the strike. Teachers' complaints will sound familiar to listeners of this podcast and anyone familiar with the education reform agenda and the situation in this country, um, or indeed the situation that we talked about in Mexico from last episode. Budget cuts mean class sizes are on the rise, testing is out of control, workloads are increasing, money for things like books and paper disappears, and privatization is on the horizon, which is, of course, a darling of the now-embattled Tory government, which who knows who's going to be in charge of that by the end of this week. Uh, One beautiful picture making the rounds on Facebook showed teachers blocking Westminster Bridge with Big Ben in the background holding a banner that reads, Teachers say defend migrants, fund schools. The Brexit campaign, as one writer noted, blamed migrants for everything, including, of course, the problems in the public schools. So teachers pushing back on this rhetoric as tensions spike is a welcome sight. And we should add that here in the U.S., teachers are doing the same, interrupting a Hillary Clinton event this week with Barack Obama in North Carolina to denounce deportations. So, of course, we will keep you posted on all of this. 
And there's been some bad news on the Fight for 15 front. I'm coming off of a victory um, on the state level in New York and California with uh, bills to finally enact a $15 minimum wage for the first time. Uh, Leave it to Chris Christie, governor of New Jersey, to put an icing on top of his rancid cake of inequality by issuing the very first gubernatorial veto of $15 wage legislation. A veto is expected to basically throttle the bill that was just passed um, in the New Jersey legislature that would implement a statewide minimum wage of $15. And now the uh, last hope for this initiative will be to take it to the people. And um, there are now plans underway from the Fight for 15 campaigners to put it on a referendum for the 2017 ballot, which is also when uh, New Jersey will pick a new governor. In the meantime, Christie is uh, sitting on top of a flaming pile of economic crisis and incurring the wrath of all of the voters of New Jersey. So um, by 2017, this, this will be pretty ripe for passage. New Jersey actually has suffered some of the country's worst uh, wage stagnation, and uh, the state's richest 1% of households have actually captured the vast majority of the rise in earnings since uh, 2009 when our so-called recovery began. So it's actually distinguished itself as one of the leading states of inequality, and the veto would affect approximately 975,000 New Jersey workers who would have benefited from the bill. Were the bill to be enacted, the $15 wage floor um, portion of the uh, U.S. workforce would actually broaden from 18% to uh, 21% of the nationwide workforce. Unfortunately, we won't be seeing that anytime soon. So the $15, and it's, by the way, it's phased in over several years, just as it is in New York and California, not be seen until 2017. But um, yeah, that's when it'll go to the ballot box. Speaking of New Jersey... The workers at the Trump Taj Mahal Casino in Atlantic City are on strike. Donald Trump no longer owns the Taj Mahal, the last remnant of his Atlantic City empire, but the workers are suffering under his successor after years of mismanagement by Trump and others. Carl Icahn, hedge funder extraordinaire and Trump buddy, now runs the casino. And I spoke to Mayra Gonzalez, who's worked there since it opened in 1990, about the strike and the ongoing problems. Tell me how the strike is going. It's going good. You know, we're still strong. We're going to fight there till we get what we want, right. what we deserve. So Diana said that you have been working at the Taj Mahal since the day it opened. So yeah. tell me how things have changed over the years, over the different levels of ownership. It's changed a lot, especially the past five years. It's, it's been getting not so good for yeah. employees, especially, yeah. you know, with the cutting hours. The manager, the management has been taking this place to the ground, and we're the ones who have been suffering the consequences. What are the major issues, you know, that are still uh, in dispute in this strike? The first one is our health health uh, plan. Right. We have now since been now twenty one months. Right. Uh, no health insurance, no uh, contributions to our pension or severance, and no pay break. Right. Those are the main issues. Yeah. Yeah, tell me about, I mean, I guess you started there when, when Trump was still the owner. Um, so, yeah, take us through sort of the bankruptcy and, and the what's been pushed on you guys since then. There were good good times, but like I said, the past five years, yeah. Um, when the hedge fund uh, took over, it's just like they 
came, I guess, to ruin the place. You know, take whatever money they could and then, you know, leave us with nothing. Obviously, there were there are other casinos in Atlantic City that almost went on strike, too. Um, why do you think yours is the last one that, that, that wouldn't come to the table and make give you a fair contract? I think they're, they're they, you know, they're not acting in good faith. And since we're owned, we don't understand, we're owned by Carl Icahn. Right. Why did the Tropicana get their fair contract and we didn't? Since we're owned by the same place and managed by the same company. And their excuses, they're, they're, there's no business. There is business. Yeah. They want to, and they put putting money in the place. Right. What about us? We're, you know, we're that, we the workers, as the one that have been keeping the place, working our back, you know, doing the job of three, two people, right. one person doing that job, you know, and they demand more, right. but we get less. What else do you want people to know about your strike and, and the fight you guys are in? I, I want people to know this is, you know, this is very serious and important to us. Yeah. Uh, and we're stressed and uh, uh, it's been stressful for everybody. Some of them have, they cannot afford health insurance, you know, and the ones that pay, it, it, you know, put it like a strain, financial strain on, on you know, in the household. Yeah. So we do what we pay. We, we buy food, we, you know, like me personally, I'm diabetic. Yeah. And I need my health insurance. Right. But it takes a chunk, you know, of, of my salary yeah. to, to pay for that care and my medicine. That was Mayra Gonzalez from the Trump Taj Mahal Casino Strike in New Jersey. And we will keep you updated on how that goes. So Puerto Rico is now facing a financial crisis of global proportions. And we're talking today with Hector Cordero Guzman. He is a professor of sociology at Baruch College, City University of New York. And he is going to explain to us what's going on in Puerto Rico, what the new so-called rescue bill for Puerto Rico means for people on the island and the diaspora beyond that, and also why the labor movement in Puerto Rico and the political players there um, have a lot at stake for the entire American workforce in terms of how this issue is dealt with. So to start out, can you give us a brief layout of the situation of Puerto Rico that has led to the the bill that just got passed? I think that Puerto Rico got into this mess for a combination of factors, and there's plenty of blame to go around. I mean, first, the Congress sets the rules of the game in Puerto Rico, as Puerto Rico is uh, territory, commonwealth, colony of the U.S. So Congress sets the economic rules of the game, and for many years Puerto Rico depended on incentives, if you will, that would make it cheaper for companies to operate in Puerto Rico. Companies were recruited and offered a very generous tax credits to settle in Puerto Rico, and that's a model that uh, did not really generate as much uh, as many jobs as was expected. So the U.S. Congress set the rules and set uh, very difficult rules in terms of the Puerto Rico economy uh, because it was very dependent on these kinds of tax incentives and tax gimmicks to attract large corporations to provide employment. The local Puerto Rico government that manages and that administers um, local affairs um, also very much became dependent on these kinds of tax gimmicks 
to attract employment and generate jobs. And that was not sustainable over the long term as some of these incentives were phased out, particularly Section 936. The labor market collapsed and government uh, went on a pattern to borrow more and more money to be able to sustain services and try various attempts at stimulate investment and revive the economy with uh, very mixed success. So bondholders came into the picture because they found Puerto Rican bonds to be attractive. They were exempt from state, local, and federal taxes. Uh, they offered very attractive rates. They were issued under the U.S. flag, and the Puerto Rico Constitution had a provision that said that in any event, uh, of a shortfall of resources and funds, bondholders have to be paid first. And lastly, Puerto Rico wasn't eligible uh, for Chapter 9 bankruptcy, so it appeared to be an ideal environment to invest money and get a high return with what seemed to be low risk. So a combination, I think, of an absent U.S. Congress that was not really mindful of uh, developing the kinds of economic development strategies that would lead to long-term employment, a government that also relied um, on, on, on tax gimmicks to create jobs and uh, which, which were materializing and on debt financing to cover basic expenses and a set of investors that were not really paying attention to the details of the evolving Puerto Rico economy and uh, pumping their money, seeking a high return. Uh, and at some point over the last couple of years, uh, it became clearer that without the kind of job generation and economic development that was needed, Puerto Rico was not going to be able to pay all of the debt uh, that it had accumulated over the last uh, 20, 30 years, which amounted to about $72 billion. So can you explain exactly how this, financial relationship with the U.S. differs compared to, um, you know, a regular state of the, the United States? Um, what is it about Puerto Rico being a territory that allows the U.S. to treat it this way? And how would a similar financial crisis be handled if, uh, you know, it was uh, one, of the, one of the states? Well, first, um, the question is, is there the same probability that a state would find itself in the same position as Puerto Rico? And the answer is probably no, in the sense that the economies of the states are somewhat uh, more developed, and the states have political representation in Washington through senators and congresspeople, uh, whose job it is, I suppose, in combination with their governors, to ensure that there's economic development activities in their states. Puerto Rico does not have adequate representation in Congress uh, Puerto Rico's economy has pretty much been treated as a consumer market and as a free trade zone for corporations, and no attempt has really been made to develop an economic plan that would meet the needs of the people that live in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico's economy has been designed uh, by the U.S. economy and U.S. interests, and it runs to support those interests. It hasn't been designed to satisfy the needs of the population and the people of Puerto Rico uh, and to meet their um, short, medium, and long-term employment needs. So in that sense, Puerto Rico doesn't have all the tools and all the representation and all the capital and all the wealth that uh, perhaps a state has 
that allows a state to be able to have a much more uh, solid economic performance. Puerto Rico was and has been for a long time a relatively poor economy. Uh, when the U.S. came in in 1898, 88% of the population could not read or write, and there was a relatively high poverty rate. To this day, the poverty rate in Puerto Rico is 45%, and 25% of the population lives below half of the poverty line, which in terms of U.S. dollars, it's about less than $6,000 per person. So Puerto Rico has never had the amount of, of, of capital, if you will, to generate investment and has had to and has depended on importing capital at very convenient terms for that capital and consuming and buying products from that capital and, in a way, exporting its people uh, in exchange for that capital because uh, that capital never again generates enough jobs to be able to employ everyone. And there's always a lot of people that find a lot of difficulty finding employment people that, by the way, have a, a very good education because over the last 40, 50 years, if there's anything that Puerto Rico has caught up with the U.S., it's been in terms of education and the percent of the population that has a high school degree, that has gone to college, uh, that has a college degree. Uh, so Puerto Rico has a relatively solid human capital and labor force, but it has very low wages and it has very low internal investment rates and it lacks a set of strategies that improve the livelihoods of the people that live in Puerto Rico because, again, the economy is not run uh, for the residents of Puerto Rico. The economy is run uh, for the large corporate interests um, that invest there and for the bondholders and others that lend uh, the government capital at very convenient rates. So basically a free trade zone right in the U.S.'s backyard. Explain the PROMISA bill um, and what exactly it threatens to do to Puerto Rico, um, not just financially but also socially and economically, and um, who are the political players that brought that bill into play? So uh, Puerto Rico faced a number of significantly large bond payments, the last one about $2 billion on July 1st, and it did not have enough money to pay them. And since it's not eligible for a Chapter 9 bankruptcy, it would have meant that the bondholders, all various types of them, would have run to a local and federal court to demand payment, possibly freezing government accounts and essentially shutting down the government. So there was a, a deadline, and there were various efforts to try to get Congress and the White House to act and do the right thing for Puerto Rico. Uh, what came out of the process where people in Puerto Rico were involved, the diaspora was involved, wasn't something that uh, was particularly optimal, which is this PROMESA bill. The, the good side of PROMESA, if any, is that it provides a stay on any lawsuits that could come Puerto Rico's way due to lack of uh, payment. So right now, Puerto Rico hasn't paid a number of its bonds, and there's a stay on, on, on the lawsuits demanding payment. The bad news of PROMESA is twofold. One, it imposes a federal financial control board on Puerto Rico, which essentially will be in charge of uh, approving any budgets of the local government and overseeing uh, contracts over a particular amount 
and the various expenses of the government, essentially to tighten the belt on local government expenses and presumably tighten the belt on the Puerto Rican people to ensure that there is sufficient funds to cover the debt. The board is also tasked with facilitating a negotiating process between bondholders and the government that can lead to some reduction of the amount of debt that needs to be paid. But essentially, the challenge with a process like this and a board like this is that it reverts uh, the political relationship between Puerto Rico and the U.S. back to the turn of the century where presidentially appointed individuals would be the one that would essentially have a final say over uh, Puerto Rico's uh, budget and finances. And mind you, this involves uh, uh, money that is collected from taxpayers that live in Puerto Rico. Uh, it's not all federal dollars. So in a way, uh, federal appointees would be in charge of running Puerto Rico's budget uh, over the next few years, and the board phases out so long as there are four consecutive years of balanced budgets and Puerto Rico can regain access to the capital markets. So it's a very tight and challenging process, and many fear that the board would impose a number of austerity measures that would further contract the Puerto Rico economy, leading to more migration and more uh, misery on the people of Puerto Rico. The board doesn't have to do this. It can also be a force of good, but it remains to be seen who will be appointed to this board and what kind of interests will prevail. Since the board is uh, empowered and, and tasked with negotiating the debt, it could renegotiate the debt under very favorable terms to Puerto Rico. It could protect the pensions of public workers, or it could negotiate very little of the debt, go after the pensions of public workers, and impose severe austerity measures. The bill itself doesn't necessarily prescribe which way the board uh, is going to go, but since four of the appointees are Republican and three will be Democrats, it's a bill that was written and approved by a Republican House and Senate, uh, though signed by a Democratic president. There is fear that the kinds of individuals that will be put in will be the kinds of individuals that believe that all the debt can be paid so long as Puerto Rico tightens its belt and cuts its budget enough to secure the money uh, that the bondholders need to be paid back in full. Right. So this was passed, of course, by the U.S. Congress over opposition from the people who actually live in Puerto Rico. Can you tell us about, um, were there people organizing against this bill in Puerto Rico and in the U.S., and who are some of the, the people who are you know, challenging this and saying there's a different way to do this? Initially, there was support in Puerto Rico over a control board because many in Puerto Rico are very frustrated with the high level of corruption, mismanagement, and cronyism in the local Puerto Rican government. But they soon realized that there may be probably one thing worse than being run by an incompetent, crony government uh, of your own people, which is to be run uh, by people from outside that may not understand all of the challenges. So support for the board has gone down uh, significantly as more people have learned more about what some of the challenges of a, of a control board uh, could be. There are a number of people organizing in Puerto Rico. There's right now an encampment outside of the federal building, an Occupy-like encampment that uh, holds uh, regular meetings, 
performances and cultural events and essentially is holding steady growing protest movement around what a federal board uh, could potentially do that would be harmful to the to the to the people of Puerto Rico in the in the US and in the Puerto Rican diaspora in the US there's been consistent efforts and some consensus that Puerto Rico in order to come out of the crisis needed four things one was a mechanism to restructure the debt uh, PROMESA provides that. The second uh, was some technical assistance to the Puerto Rico government uh, in order to get its finances straight. Not clear whether the board is the best mechanism to accomplish that. There are other ways to do that. The third thing that I think there was consensus on is that Puerto Rico needed tools for economic development, and PROMESA does not provide that. It only has some kind of a, a, a board that is going to issue a report on what could be done and that's not sufficient. Puerto Rico has been in a crisis for the last 10 years, and a very severe one, and steps need to be made uh, to, to grow the economy, as it were. And number four, I think there was a sense that people, that Puerto Rico needed parity and full access to federal programs, particularly during a time of crisis. And this means full access to health programs, the, the health money that was provided through Obamacare dries out next year. And there's a sense that that's going to have a huge impact on the health of the people of Puerto Rico, access to nutritional assistance programs, uh, and access to some of the other programs of the safety net that currently are capped uh, uh, in Puerto Rico and do not really provide benefits at the level at which they should, particularly in a time of crisis. PROMESA doesn't address any of this. All it does, in fact, is the opposite by lowering the minimum wage of individuals under 25 um, to 4.25 an hour, under the argument that somehow by lowering wages in Puerto Rico, you're going to increase economic activity. Um, so, unfortunately, rather than than this being an opportunity to do the right thing, it has become an opportunity to experiment with with the worst of of, of austerity-like uh, uh, and anti-worker types of measures, uh, with the hope that by squeezing workers enough. Somehow, both economic development and money to pay the debt will materialize. Uh, most people are very afraid uh, that 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 this is what's coming uh, on top of a, of a crisis already, and, and, and very few are hopeful that a recipe that's simply based on more austerity and, and more cuts and lack of access of, of the people of Puerto Rico to uh, good jobs, uh, good wages, uh, good benefits is really going to be um, and make the life for everyone more difficult and lead to even more migration. Puerto Rico is losing population at a rate unseen in other parts of the world and only seen during times of war or famine. Uh, I'm not suggesting that there's war or famine in Puerto Rico. Precisely the point is that when there isn't, you still have such high migration because people do not see a future for themselves, their families, and their children in Puerto Rico. And that's a challenge. And austerity lower wages, uh, making the lives of working men and women more difficult by tightening uh, their belt, by raising their taxes, is not going to lead to more economic development, more economic growth, and prosperity for the people of Puerto Rico. So there's a lot of fear about what may lie ahead. Yeah. Mm -hmm. First of all, what's the status of the labor movement in uh, Puerto Rico today, and, and what's been the response? Has there been a worker-led response uh, at the grassroots? The labor movement in Puerto Rico has been very active, especially the unions that represent 
uh, uh, state workers and, and, and government workers. And many of them uh, uh, are very afraid that their pensions are being threatened. Puerto Rico has about a $40 billion pension liability in addition to the 70 it was $72 billion. $2 billion has been paid over the last couple of years, so by now it's a $70 billion debt. And there are questions about how the board is going to handle debt liability, bond debt liability versus pensions, and a lot of fear that pensions are going to be cut down, uh, which are essentially the main source of income for, for, for those that, that, that retire from, from a life of, of work with the government. Uh, teachers in Puerto Rico do not have, do not get Social Security. Uh, police in Puerto Rico, up until this year, did not get Social Security. So if you cut the public pensions of a teacher, uh, uh, you're really hurting uh, by 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 a significant amount their 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 lives and livelihoods. So uh, retired, uh, active government workers are organizing because second, another strategy that's part of this austerity measure is to cut the size of Puerto Rico's government down. Uh, to reduce uh, its, its employment and to and to reduce its payroll. Uh, essentially, the workers that provide the vital services for uh, the population, which which again, 45% is, is below poverty, and there are uh, some programs that, that that are designed to to try to uh, support this this population. So there's a, a lot of fear in the working class in Puerto Rico, especially the working class and workers that are tied to the government that their jobs are at stake and that their pensions uh, are, are at stake. Uh, and not a lot of clarity in terms of how the board uh, is going to, to honor uh, those commitments that have been made and whether it's going to really then impose another round of austerity, not on just on, on, on current workers, but on workers that already worked and are depending on those pensions to, uh, to support themselves and their families. So some people I've seen compared the situation in Puerto Rico to Greece um, and what the EU did to Greece. Others have compared um, the this control board to the emergency managers in Michigan and in like Flint and Detroit. Are there any actual analogies for the situation in Puerto Rico um, or any places where similar crises might happen? I think that that there are similarities with the Greece with the Greek case in terms of uh, the Greek economy essentially being held hostage by the funding offered by the principals in the EU, the difference being that at least the people in Greece at some point voted to be part of the EU and at some point vote for, for, their, for their local government uh, uh, and for those that, that pass the laws that impact them. The people of Puerto Rico do not have a say, a uh, vote in Congress, uh, um, and they didn't necessarily choose or, or pick this particular type of a relationship. So uh, it, while it's a parallel in terms of uh, having to live under restrictions and dictates from outside, there are differences in terms of the, let's say, political legitimacy that, 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 that comes with that. I think it is somewhat similar, uh, uh, again, minus the fact that people in Michigan still vote for the president and still vote for their Congress people and still vote for their elected officials, uh, but it is, it is, and it feels like a, <clears throat> like if a governor <clears throat> uh, appointed a, a manager over a city. So in this case, it's a Congress and a president appointing a manager over a territory, which would be the equivalent of the 26th, 27th, or 28th largest state. Uh, 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 and an entity that, that, that 
is part Latin American by, by history and by culture and by language and by affinity, and is American by virtue of uh, citizenship uh, and also uh, you know, a shared history and, 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 and contact and the fact that by now there are more Puerto Ricans living in the continental United States than on the island itself. Uh, um, so Puerto Rico, in a way, is a unique case, but it's a case that 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 is is, is unique in its in its form and in its components, but it's not unique in terms of a the fact that other areas have seen what we may want to say people from outside uh, 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 come in to to dictate uh, economic and fiscal parameters, and and um, it is similar to other areas in terms of what we can expect to be the impact of austerity measures. Uh, uh, whether you impose those on a territory, on a country, on a state, on a city, when you really uh, 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 cut wages, cut benefits, increase and raise fees and taxes on working people. And again, Puerto Rico has moved over time from an income-based tax to a consumption-based tax, which is the most regressive form of taxation, meaning you pick the pockets of more people as opposed to the people that have the most. So Puerto Rico can be and provide lessons to, to, to other areas and regions in terms of whether austerity measures uh, lead to economic prosperity and economic growth. And, and, and the sense is that they haven't up to this point, and they are likely to do so in the future. So, so at which point? How low does it have to go? How bad do things have to get for, for Congress uh, to, to, to think about trying a different approach. Can you put the relationship between the U.S. and Puerto Rico and its colonial history in the context of the entire hemisphere and what we've been seeing across uh, Latin America in recent years, um, especially with things like um, you know financial crises and uh, sovereign debt and vulture funds and the like? What we're seeing in Puerto Rico is similar to what we see in terms of uh, the rest of Latin America and other parts of the so-called developing world in terms of uh, the elements of the economic development model. Puerto Rico, in a way, was a precursor to this uh, capital import, export-led, industrialization type of economic development strategy. Uh, it worked during the 50s and, and 60s, and, and the economy and, and incomes grew, but at some point that was changed or changed and evolved into more capital-intensive manufacturing, which doesn't employ as many people, so you can produce a lot of profit with very few people, and the masses are still unemployed. Uh, um, and and, and you see some, we see some of that happening in some parts of the world. I think the important feature of Puerto Rico's development model that is a lesson to others and others are involved in is this whole issue of debt based financing and debt-based growth. In traditional colonialism, as we understand it, the metropolis extracted profits from the colony and sometimes invested some of those bags in infrastructure in the colony so they could extract even more profits. In the case of Puerto Rico, what we see after the 1950s is that the economic development model that was followed was the we're going to lend you the money model. So you see a lot of uh, growth in Puerto Rico uh, over time. You see a lot of construction. You see a lot of cement. But that is not built by savings uh, or assets that people have, 
that is built because you borrow a lot of money at very high interest rates that you're going to have to pay for a long time to be able to build that. And Puerto Rico did have access to those markets, and lenders, again, were willing to lend to Puerto Rico because they felt secure by the U.S. flag, secure by the Puerto Rico Constitution and the U.S. Constitution. So Puerto Rico grew with a model that is the debt financing model that can be a very expensive way to grow. So you create the appearance of growth when, in fact, what you've accumulated is a huge amount of debt and you've shipped profits to those that lend you the money at a very high, high rate. So there is a difference between owning a country and owing a country. And I think Puerto Rico owes. And, and, and again, it, it creates dissonance because if you take an airplane and you land there and you take a look around, it looks like any other developed place. But everything, almost everything you see there that's been built was borrowed at very high rates that at some point have to be paid back. And that's the challenge that we see today. Puerto Rico doesn't generate enough, enough revenue to pay two, three, four billion dollars a year in, in debt payments. The government budget is nine billion dollars. If you add all the public corporations, it's about twenty billion dollars. So it's now paying ten, fifteen, almost twenty percent uh, under some estimates higher proportion of the budget on debt payments of principal and interest. So there is a lesson to be learned for Puerto Rico and for other countries in terms of the huge challenges that come when you do economic development by, by way of, of, of borrowing and, and by way of huge uh, debt financing, because if those strategies do not work and that economic development does not materialize, then you have a lot of debt that is very difficult for you to repay. And we've seen debt crises, uh, 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 again, in, 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 in Southern Europe uh, these days, in Latin America in the past, uh, and, they will, and they will continue as long as the only mechanism available for some localities and places to, to develop is, is through borrowing money at very high rates, hoping that whatever they borrow the money for uh, works in a way that generates enough resources to pay it back. It sometimes has worked, but often uh, it doesn't, and it generates this huge debt crisis where you find that a large proportion of budgets have to be spent just paying principal and interest. Mm. In terms of, you know, a, an alternative to debt-based financing, um, can you talk about some of the ways that Puerto Rico could possibly develop in the long term that are self-sufficient and are rooted in, like, w what Puerto Rico has as its own resources? Puerto Rico, you know, uh, the capital uh, comes mostly from outside. The goods that are consumed by people um, come mostly from outside, are imported, and a lot of what it produces it's exported. So Puerto Rico is a very lucrative consumer market for U.S. corporations, um, and it's been a very lucrative market up until a couple of years ago for Wall Street and, and, and investors. Uh, but there is a disconnection between what people consume and, and, what, and what the economy produces in a way that it makes it very difficult to capture the gains uh, 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 from, from, that, from that strategy. So Puerto Rico needs an economic development strategy that creates more internal linkages between what is produced, uh, what is consumed, uh, who invests, and who profits, such that as much of it as possible stays inside the country uh, to generate economic development. 
but if you borrow uh, capital and money and you import everything you consume, then you don't generate enough internal economic activity um, to make that uh, uh, economy grow and be self-sustained. So Puerto Rico has been, in a way, blessed by having access to the U.S. market, but it's been cursed by it in the sense that it hasn't allowed for the development of a, a locally integrated economy in a way that you can, through inputs in one part of the economy, generate growth in other parts of the economy. Uh, because if um, you sell more of something, but those that are making the profit are outside, and if you do something, but the money that you get from that you owe because you borrowed the money to make that investment, then you're not generating enough uh, economic growth to to to, to sustain and, 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 and propel the economy. So that requires a set of strategies. That requires some flexible capital from government, from the federal government. Uh, it's been done before uh, in, in, in Marshall Plan-like uh, in terms of investment and in Brady-like plans in terms of uh, the Treasury buys the bonds, pays the bondholders, and then uh, creates much comfortable terms for Puerto Rico to pay the debt back, for example. But there is an apprehension to consider uh, uh, those strategies because there's a sense that if it's done for Puerto Rico, even though it's not a state, that other states would demand similar preferential treatment. Um, so uh, Puerto Rico doesn't have the kind of representation in Washington that would allow it to articulate and get done what it needs and uh, the folks in Washington are afraid that if they do something for Puerto Rico that looks special, that others uh, in the U.S. are going to see that and demand that it's done for them also. So that's why what we ended up with was some kind of a board, because there's this challenge of, of really coming up with some kind of creative consensus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Describe for us the the situation socially um, right now on the island, how are people already feeling this crisis and the impending so-called rescue bill, and how are they coping? So imagine Puerto Rico at some point was a sunny island with the beautiful sandy beach that now has been taken over by a big cloud of thunder and rain. The population is very afraid uh, of what's coming uh, and again, on top of having suffered over the last few years of significant cuts in services and significant increases in the cost of basic utilities, uh, electric, water, there's talk about increasing tuition at the university, uh, and other uh, local taxes that are paid. Um, so the population is feeling the pinch. They see an austerity board coming in the horizon. There's an election coming up. So the public airwaves are saturated with electioneering and promises that, that people have grown tired of by now. So hope is down, despair is up, and what many people are doing is essentially packing up their bags, packing up their families, contacting family and friends that are in Florida or New York or Connecticut or New Jersey, and, and, and moving, some thinking that they're going to weather the storm for a few years and, and, and earn some money to support themselves and maybe help their families back in Puerto Rico. Others thinking more permanently because they don't see uh, uh, any hope for the island, and that's uh, a real shame. Uh, and and, and, and the, the, what's tragic about this story is that it's a play with, with three main actors, the Puerto Rico government, the U.S. Congress, and the bondholders, 
each of whom have been in their own orbit pulling in their own direction, and each of them holding a gun to the head of the Puerto Rican people uh, demanding their, their peace. Uh, um, the, the, the bondholders demanding full payment. Uh, uh, U.S. Congress was absent, and now it comes back with this overpowering uh, control board. And, and, and the Puerto Rico government, uh, who, who really uh, needs to uh, get, get its act together and really uh, do right by, by the people. Um, so it's a sad story that doesn't have any heroes. The only heroes are going to be the people of Puerto Rico that are going to uh, continue to organize and, 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 and say enough uh, in terms of this corruption and malfeasance in government, uh, demand that the U.S. Congress take action and address not just the, 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 the specific fiscal problems and demand that bondholders get paid, but, but, but demand that there are a set of strategies put in place uh, that bring about a fair uh, just economic development set of strategies, not just enriching the rich even more. And the bondholders that, that came in may not have seen the fine print, may have taken some risks that they uh, either were not aware they were taken or ignored in search for higher returns. And now I think everyone needs to kind of come to the table uh, uh, to ensure that Puerto, people of Puerto Rico and the island has a better future. One of the big challenges in Puerto Rico is that there's a disconnect between the masses and the elite, and the local elite. Uh, um, the bottom 20% of people in Puerto Rico earn 1% of all the income in Puerto Rico. The next 20% earn another 8%. So the bottom 40% of people in Puerto Rico earn 9% of the income. The top 5% of people in Puerto Rico earn 25% of the income. And the top 20% of earners in Puerto Rico earn 55% of the income. So Puerto Rico is also a very unequal society, and, 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 and that's one of the challenges that also needs to be addressed, and that is a very difficult challenge to address because local elites are very entrenched, and when there's any pain, uh, they ensure to pass it down to the working classes. So if we're really going to try to solve this problem, you need the Puerto Rico government fully on board, you need bondholders fully on board, you need a Congress that's active and engaged, and you need a, a civil society and a working class in Puerto Rico that is actively seeking out its interest and not uh, being subsumed by, by the interest of, of, of local elites that have been very good at um, ensuring that their, uh, that their piece of the pie holds steady over the last 40 years. If we believe there's an inequality problem in the U.S., it's even bigger in Puerto Rico. That was Professor Hector Cordero Guzman, and we will put links to his work at the Descent website. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it is everybody's favorite time, time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. This week we were struck with the news of two more police shootings captured on video. Two more black men dead, killed in front of their friends and loved ones. The deaths of Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and Philando Castile in Falcon Heights, Minnesota, reminded everyone that despite years of Black Lives Matter protests, we still have a long, long way to go. Alton Sterling, rather like Eric Garner on Staten Island in 2014, was killed while he was at work, or at least while doing what he did to make a living, selling CDs outside of the Triple S food mart. 
Dissent editorial board member Tressie McMillan Cottom noted on Twitter that the long history of black men having to make their living in the informal economy because they are often locked out of the formal one. She underscored that the informal economy, selling CDs, selling loose cigarettes as Garner did, is a last resort for those who've been locked out of the formal job market, and that the growth of inequality will leave more and more people forced into it. Police violence, she noted, then becomes a form of labor regulation. Emily Badger at Wonk Blog drew on Tressie's tweets to write a piece titled Alton Sterling, Eric Garner, and the Double Standard of the Side Hustle. I will say, arg, I wish I'd written that, but I also kind of wish Tressie had written it. In any case, Badger notes the forms of seeking sustenance through selling consumer goods or services that are not strictly legal or outside of the recognized locations and structures for doing so. The informal economy that is accessible to black men who might have a criminal record or might just be the last ones hired in a still rough economy is itself criminalized. On the other hand, there are plenty of side hustles that are now being promoted, legalized, and trumpeted as a new form of economic activity. I am talking, of course, about the so-called sharing economy, in which selling rides in your car or unregulated stays in your house or petty services is lauded, as long as it's through some fancy app that makes money for some whiz kid entrepreneur at the top. Badger quotes Rudy Espinoza, a nonprofit director, pointing out that these informal economy workers are also being entrepreneurial, the very trait that Americans are supposed to look upon so favorably. They're trying their damnedest to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. But selling candy bars on the train or outside of Target makes you a target for the police, and an arrest record then further contributes to the informal economy being your only choice. And then it, yet again, increases your chances of a run-in with the police, a run-in with the police that could be, as it was for Alton Sterling and Eric Garner, fatal. As Badger notes, for many people, in other words, we make illegal work their only option, and then we punish them for doing it. So my pick is A Tender Hand in the Presence of Death. It's in The New Yorker by Larissa McFarquhar, and it talks about the life of a hospice care nurse. Um, and it's kind of an obscure profession that we don't often think about when we think about the profession of nursing, but it offers a fascinating portrait of a profession that is often uh, treated as thankless, uh, very much undervalued, and uh, often overlooked. And it also is an interesting reflection on the end of life and what aging and uh, dying with dignity means in today's society, uh, especially in a city like New York. It follows one Jamaican-American nurse, Heather, and she's uh, been working with the dead, which sounds like a tough enough job. Um, But in a weird way, she talks about how she sees it as a bit of a privilege. Larissa McFarquhar writes, Heather, like most hospice workers, feels that it is a privilege to spend time with the dying, to be allowed into a person's life and a family's life when they're at their rawest and most vulnerable and when they need the most help. Some hospice workers believe that working with the dying is the closest you can get on earth to the presence of God, which is kind of a fascinating dynamic when you think about um, how uh, healthcare workforces are generally structured and often home care specifically, um, see the news clip on home care and uh, fair wages, how that is vastly undervalued in this society, just as the labor of care is um, altogether. And there are all sorts of arcane rules in this industry, such as Medicare still requires, quote, that volunteers provide 5% of a hospice's staff hours, even though some hospices are now large businesses that are very profitable indeed. And it kind of ignores the whole commercial dynamics of how um, the business of dying has uh, really become this this uh, huge sector of the economy. So the work is 
difficult, but also laden with strange taboos about death, and also some of the psychological complexities of dealing with a family that is in grief for someone who is still essentially um, alive and lucid in many cases. And so sometimes, for instance, um, Parker writes, the adult child is so entangled with her parents' misery that it was as though Heather had two patients rather than one. And I just thought that the cultural issues involved, especially since Heather herself, an immigrant, is working with a lot of immigrant families, how those cultural dynamics um, are navigated during such a sensitive time as the end of life. And the career also involves a weird kind of spiritual compensation that, speaking of emotional labor, um, isn't really counted in the way that we often discount the way emotional control and learning how to manage a worker's emotions is often overlooked in under capitalism, I guess. Um, and uh, a lot of the people that she deals with have had extremely tough lives, and it offers an interesting coda at the end where she reflects on the life of one patient who has lived an extraordinarily hard life, and it's one of the few patients that she actually cries for at the end of life um, because she has basically unburdened herself in her dying days about her life as a sex worker and dealing with uh, substance abuse. And uh, she finds it in an odd way redeeming, but it also raises some questions about how uh, redemption is really handled under a capitalist system and how many people die specifically because of things that have been done to them and ways that they've been exploited economically at the end of life. And looking at that from a workforce perspective um, in the final days is pretty fascinating. Uh, that is all we have for today. If you are in New York on July 12th, you can join me along with Melissa Jira Grant, uh, fellow Descent podcast host Kate Aronoff, Victoria Law, and E. Tammy Kim. I will be doing the first reading from my upcoming book, Necessary Trouble, um, at 61 Local, our favorite spot in Brooklyn. That is next Tuesday, July 12th. And that does it for this episode of Belabored. Catch us in another two weeks. And if you have any uh, story ideas or questions you want to email us, do so at belabored at descentmagazine.org. And don't forget to tweet at us at hashtag belabored with any story ideas, gripes, grievances, um, and impending strikes. Please let us know. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.